Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski. We're going to be talking about Japan. Perhaps you've heard their currency is depreciating against the US dollar. And as at what kind of levels, Jeff? We haven't seen these in a quarter of a century. Is that right? Yeah, I think you're being kind. You're being very, you're being very soft spoken here, Emil, because the Japanese yen isn't just depreciating. That's kind of putting it mildly. It's kind of crashing. Crashing. Quarter of a century level lows, the bond market. We're also going to talk about Japan's bond market and how the Central Bank of Japan is basically buying up all of it, almost 50%. So these are very important markets, very important currencies to the global monetary system. Everyone talks about them, but Jeff Snyder asks a very interesting question, quote from his recent article What if Japan's bond and currency markets? Aren't really about Japan at all. What a great question. I love it, Jeff. For the audience that wants to read along, Global Euro Dollar Confirmation is the title. And, Jeff, where can they find this article? They can get it for free for a limited time at Markets Insider Pro, where we have all of the stuff that I used to put on a blog is now weekly deep dives. There's a daily briefing that I write money and macro focused. There's also Steve Van Meter's Momentum Timer Pro. And now we're able to offer Tracy Shoechart's uh, Oil and Gas Weekly Report 2. So at Markets Insider Pro for a limited time, the next little while, if you sign up there, you'll be able to get all of this stuff free delivered to your inbox. Excellent. Good. Jeff, very interesting. What if the Japanese bond market and Japanese currency isn't about Japan at all? I love it. I love it. Uh, tell us. Go ahead. Well, I think, um, first of all, when you say JGB or Japanese go uh, government bonds, most people say, nah, we don't care about those. That's just the Bank of Japan. Hasn't the Bank of Japan, who has been doing quantitative easing in what is the other Q and Q, QE? Now, I forget what the first Q is. It's supposed to be qualitative or something. That's right. Qualitative and quantitative. They added another Q to it. You know, that was what, Emil? That was 2013. That was almost 10 years ago. Wow. Time flies. Amazing. I know. I feel old now. The three arrows. It was a huge deal. Yeah, the three arrows. Yeah, and of course, poor Prime Minister Abe was assassinated just recently. Let me just... Jeff, let me just jump in. Uh, A lot of people say what recently happened in the United States, this fiscal spending, the central bank stimulus, we've never seen it before. I say what happened in Japan 2013, 14, 15... That was bigger. It was such a sensation in the economist world, in economics. It was gigantic. And the results are, meh, not not what was promised. The results are they're still doing it. That's the thing. QQE has never been terminated. Here we, And you're right. Remember, it was not just economy. I mean, Paul Krugman, of all people, the guy who said you need to go big or don't, you know, go big or don't come at all. Was he thought in 2013, this finally, they're listening to me, this QQE stuff, these three arrows, the fiscal policies that go along with this. They really thought that this was the final magic elixir. They'd finally put the, the right number together, like big number together. This was going to be the shock and awe that wowed Japan into an actual recovery. And as we said, it couldn't have been because here we are almost a decade later and they're still doing it. 
And of course, getting back to the topic of our discussion, the consequence of doing quantitative easing at that level for this long, of course, it's been changed, it's been altered. There's YCC and other things along the way. But by and large, the Bank of Japan has been buying JGBs by the bushelful for the last really 20 years, but accelerated pace, especially between 2013 and 2016. And then again, over the last couple of years, at a much accelerated pace to the point where I think most people quite you know, appropriately conceive of the JGB market as just whatever the Bank of Japan does. But you looked at a recent study or a report, Jeff, where did you get the data where the government, the Bank of Japan owns 43% on average? And here's where it gets interesting, ladies and gentlemen, but there are short-term bills and then long-term bonds and notes. And Jeff, there's a difference between the two and how they're used. And interestingly, there's a difference in the ownership percentages, almost as if the Bank of Japan is purposely avoiding a certain segment of their bond market. Tell us. I don't know if they're avoiding. I think there is definitely official, uh, official uh, preference for notes and bonds, the JGBs. I think they're being outbid, <laughs> to be perfectly honest with Fascinating. you. But as you said, the, the data comes from the horse's mouth itself. It comes from the Ministry of Finance, who tracks this sort of stuff. And they said, hey, guess what? While the Bank of Japan owns a huge chunk of the JGB market, they own very little of the bill market. What is it? I think about 13%, something around there, about an eighth of the bill market. It's not a huge amount as you might think. In fact, uh, most of the bill market is owned by someone else. And it's probably not a class of or a group of, of participants that you might actually uh, think about if you were presented with, hey, if, you, if somebody asked you who owns most of the Japanese short-term government bonds, these bills, I don't think most people would get the right answer. Let me read it from the article, Jeff. But first, this from Eurodollar Enterprises. Friends, do you direct the Treasury Ministry? Do your political masters expect foaming asset prices? Are you unsure how to produce lasting froth? Then a box of bath suds from Eurodollar Enterprises is for you. Yes, practice blowing bubbles in the gurgling luxury of your freestanding clawfoot tub. Find the perfect mix between liquidity and hot air with our Capital Markets Foam Formulation. Our bubble brew line comes in currencies, commodities, cryptos, and collectibles. Blow them all. Orders received today will come with a fussy central banker, typically retailing for the price of hedge fund general partner, absolutely free. Simulate the political arena trying to blow it in the presence of an erratic technocrat. Don't blow it. Not without bath suds. New. From Eurodollar Enterprises. Central banker swimsuit not included. Far less than the JGBs are owned. I messed it up. I'm just going to read what you wrote. At the end of March, there were only about 155 trillion yen outstanding bills, while far less than JGBs, less than 10% of them were held by the BOJ. About a third are owned by Japanese bank and the majority, 55%, were held by foreigners. And that proportion has been increasing steadily since 2010. Yeah, in 2010, the proportion owned by foreigners was about 15%. So between 2010, foreigners have been scarfing up JJ bills by the bushelful, not the Bank of Japan, foreigners, people outside the US or outside Japan 
have been buying these short-term government instruments, which, as we know, since 2016, have been yielding only negative rates. So that begs a couple different questions here. Why are foreigners interested in owning these short-term Japanese bills? And why is it foreigners that are so interested in them? You asked the question, Jeff, so I feel bad. I feel like I don't have a role in the show because that's the question I was going to ask you. So I send it right back to you. Have you caught your breath? Yes, I have caught my breath. <laughs> okay. So why are foreigners buying Japanese bills? And it has to do with the actual yen carry trade. Now, the yen carry trade, that's been a term that's been thrown around for many, many years. Really, ironically, going back to around 2010. Hmm. which it proposes that, um, you know, Japanese banks or Japanese financials are taking advantage of low interest rate differentials. They're borrowing in yen and, and investing overseas when that's not actually the full extent of the case. There's actually other parts of it. And I think they get the first part wrong, which is Japanese banks don't need to borrow in yen at all. They have all the yen reserves they need to put up as collateral, which then they swap into U.S. dollars to then invest overseas. And it doesn't have to be in U.S. dollar denominated assets, they can swap and intermediate through U.S. dollars to invest in any number of other currency opportunities around the world to take advantage of interest rate differentials, to take advantage of risk adjusted perceptions, any number of things. So the banks in Japan begin with all the sort of collateral they need, including the ability to post Japanese government bond bills. And so in a swap arrangement, the bank, uh, the bank in Japan, I keep wanting to say Bank of Japan, the banks in Japan will swap yen for U.S. dollars using a currency swap, which is collateralized by some instrument on the other side where the swapper, the counterparty that is presenting U.S. dollars to the bank in Japan, not the Bank of Japan, the bank in Japan will get, now I have yen collateral. And sometimes that yen collateral can be reserves. Most of the time, though, it's these Japanese government bills, which from the perspective of the U.S. dollar investor or the U.S. dollar swapper, they don't mind uh, holding liquid, liquid uh, Japanese government bills because they're liquid. They don't mind paying a negative return because the structural dollar shortage, particularly for Japanese banks, means they're getting paid on the swap, not for holding yen or holding yen collateral. So this is profitable for both sides. For the bank in Japan, they are putting money to work outside of Japan where they'll be getting higher returns, let's say China. And for the dollar providing banks, they're losing money, kind of. Yeah, they're losing money on the return of the collateral, but maybe they can put the, use, the collateral to use in some other transaction. Plus, they're also making money on the foreign exchange swap, which is part of the whole transaction. So everyone's very happy. Okay, Jeff, tell me if I got that wrong, but I think I got it. Then, now we're going to bring it into looking at bill yields and what they might tell us about the global monetary system. In the U.S., we talk about it all the time, the bill yields. Does that same rule apply in the Bank of Japan? In Japan, yeah, the Japanese government bills, there is fluctuations in, in yield that are actually market-based because it isn't the Bank of Japan that is the 800-pound <laughs> gorilla in the market. So there is market fluctuation, although the bill yields don't move all that much because the Japanese government bond market is a pretty placid place. So market fluctuation on the order of several basis points is like an earthquake. 
because of how boring the place ends up being. So when we see something like the Japanese three-month government bond yield suddenly fall further below zero than it had been, it kind of catches your eye because what that means is it's not based on monetary policy. It's not based on QQE and, and uh, from the Bank of Japan. It must be based on some market factor that either means there's a rush of demand for these bills because Japanese banks are throwing even more money overseas because they're doing more swap trades. Therefore, they need to collateralize the swaps, which or is it good. Means the opposite. Yes, or bad. So we've got, so the yields can be falling. And we've got a graph up here from your article where we, you've got a couple of red boxes showing yields falling. But as Jeff, am I keeping this straight? This falling yields can be a sign of good news. Banks are doing more business abroad. Money's being expanded. Great. So higher demand for the bills to be collateral, right? Yes. That's, that's one explanation. But then there's also a rush to get collateral because there's a global monetary shortage. Right. And then, so, so you need to post more know? collateral because something has changed in the swap market. Something has changed in the ability of especially Japanese banks to be able to roll over their funding arrangement to, to roll over these currency swaps to roll over what is really the yen carry trade. And if there's a sudden rush to be able to do that, where you have to post more collateral for probably less U.S. dollars swapped, that would be consistent with some of the other deflationary tightening indications that we see around the rest of the world. So if we could correlate this behavior in Japanese government bills with, say, other market indications in the U.S. dollar world, we would know which, which of our explanations it must be. Is it the good one where Japanese banks are throwing yen outside want dollars because they're going to flood the world with investment? Or is it because they're, oh my God, we're in deep trouble. We better start finding good, deep, more collateral because otherwise we won't be able to roll over our current arrangements. Which one is it? Let's just throw some correlations out there. So in the previous graph, you had a couple of red boxes and you identified them as starting in mid to late March and mid to late June. And now we're looking at a graph where we don't have the Bank of Japan or any Japanese yields here, we have the US dollar and Japanese exchange yen exchange rate and how it is increasing. So the yen is losing value and you've overlaid that across repurchase agreement fails as reported by primary dealers in the US. So not the full picture, not even close, right, Jeff? Yeah. But a picture, a segment. And we can see that there, this is the fail. So the fail to deliver or fail to receive of securities, the transaction that was agreed to the day before, typically. And we see that those fails have increased steadily. And we've punctuated by a few, uh, few, few points here, Jeff. And it looks like it correlates <laughs> to the yen. You're putting it terribly again. Those, those uh, few, few spikes in repo, feels, repo fails, excuse me were extreme. Those were as high as they had been in March of 2020. And the fact that it correlates with the, with the Japanese yen tells us something about what's really going on here, especially as tying this back together with Japanese government bond yields, which correlate very closely to what we're seeing is collateral shortages across the euro dollar system, understanding the mechanics of the yen carry trade here. What we're saying is pretty conclusively, Japanese banks are in big, big trouble here. And they're getting that trouble is increasing 
first of all, for collateral reasons on the U.S. dollar side, which is forcing them to try to post more Japanese bills that foreigners will actually accept. So it's a story of Japanese money that isn't really about Japan at all. Instead, we're using Japanese markets, Japanese data, Japanese banking practices to tell us something very important about the global euro dollar condition. Jeff, going completely off the report now, do you think it has to do with Japan's relationship with China? So let's talk about that it's China that is a real concern, the Second Cold War, possible confrontation with the West, things really breaking down. So that's why the Japanese situation is so negative. That currency is depreciating so quickly. Or is it no, it's similar to what's happening in Europe or in other parts of the world. It's really no different. It's the global monetary shortage. Is what we're seeing in Japan more acute, caused by China, your speculation, or just a general euro dollar number five negativity? Yes, something has clearly changed here with regard to the Japanese banks and the Japanese yen carry trade. Because in, be in previous euro dollar episodes, uh, the euro dollar system would look at Japanese banks and say, yeah, you're doing a lot of business with China, but we only care about the Chinese part of it. You guys, are, you guys in Japan are relatively fine. You know, we would separate and compartmentalize risk aversion for Chinese banks versus Japanese banks. In fact, it was the Japanese banks themselves that said, we don't want to do as much business in China for various reasons. It's not looking good economically speaking. The risk adjusted opportunities aren't, as, aren't what we thought they were. And so much of the Chinese dollar problem was Japanese banks themselves removing themselves from the euro dollar equation, not redistributing dollars into China as much. What's happened this time, which seems to be different from those other times, is the euro dollar market is now focusing not just on China, but also the Japanese banks, the Japanese banking system as a whole and saying, we're not going to separate Tokyo from Beijing. There seems to be a connection here. There seems to be some tie, a unifying factor where risk aversion is rising for both Japan and China at the same time. In some ways, it's almost as if the Japanese are being viewed even worse than the Chinese are, although we don't really, I mean, you know, the manipulation in CNY, just in terms of currency, the Japanese yen has fallen much further. But you're right, I mean, something has clearly changed with regard to Japan. The relationship between the Japanese yen and repo fails, for example. Is there a collateral problem that's specific to Tokyo? I don't know. Is it geopolitics? That's certainly a, a good possibility where, you know, if the Chinese do start something, it's going to impact the, ja the Japanese more than anywhere else, first of all. So it could be just be proximity. It could be increasing economic uncertainty about Asia in general or Asia as a whole. And then it's probably likely all of those combined because we, as you know, everybody knows, we live in a very much more, a much more dangerous world than we thought we had even or thought we lived in last year. And when the accelerating deflationary money since March, which really uh, we see in the Japanese uh, yen as well as these Japanese government bond yield or government bill yields, including the 52 week yield too. When you look at all these things together, it's as if the market, the global Euro dollar system is looking at Japan and saying, you're among our greatest fears at the moment. Hmm. Incredible. Uh, Jeff, I hope our audience doesn't think that we live in a much more dangerous world than last year. I hope they, re they I would think they know that it's the same level of danger. 
always was dangerous. It's always been escalating, always troubling. That's what we've, we've been covering on this show for a couple of years. The big picture, global transformation, the end of the existing world order, uh, that it's almost inevitable. Jeff, sometimes people come up to me and they say, don't put your hair in a ponytail. Other times they come up to me and they say, thanks for the explanation. What am I to do? Just sit here and be educated? No, I should do something. What do you recommend? Uh, and I don't answer. I don't answer. But what should I answer? What would you answer if they asked you that question? It depends on the, the, the circumstances. But for most, most people, it's, as you just said, it's education, being aware of what's going on. There are all sorts of corollaries like investments, you know, and everything else. That's what they want, Jeff. They don't want more education. They say, yeah, just stop it with the, your books. Books are for dummies, <laughs> they say. What am I supposed to do? Do we answer those questions, Jeff, or not? Because that those are legitimate questions people are asking. They are legitimate questions, and they are there are things that we want to talk about in, in certain circumstances. But you know, doing so on a podcast, investing is supposed to be a very personal affair. It's not something that's supposed to be a one size fit all approach. There's supposed to be different strategies. If people are interested in what I'm doing with uh, Steve Van Meter, they can check us out at portfolioshield.net because we do have various strategies that deal with the circumstances that we're in right now and what we think is happening across the marketplace, including deflationary, geopolitical scenarios, all those other, the rising tide of, of badness across the world. How do we handle those things? Well, Steve's got a qualitative or a quantitative approach that we think that can answer some of these questions for people. Wonderful, Jeff. Okay, I'll talk to you later. All right, thanks, Emil.